This is Guns and Butter. Basically, the financial sector are the barbarians at the gate. And if you're going to attack an economy and do what barbarians do, which is grab the land and uh, make the people pay rent, issue yourself monopolies, and make yourself the hereditary government, of course you want to call the defunding population terrorists. And that's exactly uh, you know what's happened today. When uh, America invades the country and calls the defenders who fight back terrorists, uh, it's very much as if the British would have uh, called the American uh, revolutionaries uh, terrorists. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Financial Barbarians at the Gate. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid, and Global Fracture, the New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has written several recent articles on the global financial crisis, including The Financial War Against Iceland, Being Defeated by Debt is as Deadly as Outright Military Warfare, Financial Crisis, Sustaining Unsustainability, $1 trillion more to sustain the economic crisis, G20 message to indebted countries, drop dead. Economic Meltdown, The Dollar Glut is What Finances America's Military Buildup. The U.S. Payments Deficit Stems from Military Spending. How the Scam Works, The Free Market at Work Financial Style. The Real AIG Conspiracy, among many other articles. Dr. Michael Hudson, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. You've just returned from Europe. What countries did you visit, and what was the reason for your trip? The Basque country in Iceland. In the Basque country, I was brought there by one of their labor unions to help draft a tax policy for them. And I met with most of the LAB union leaders. And when I was there, they called a general strike, not so much to protest, but for an education day on May 21st to go over about 20 of my columns to educate the union members in what kind of economic policy to push for. Uh, then I went to Iceland, uh, which is in a lot of problems because it's somewhat of a post-feudal economy where, uh, like uh, the Basque country, it's uh, very egalitarian for most people, very middle class, uh, but a few feudal lords at the top. And the feudal lords had got together and formed banks, uh, all of which had gone bankrupt uh, by last fall and uh, owed a huge amount of money. Uh, England, in order to uh, protect its depositors, declared Iceland a terrorist country and uh, grabbed all the deposits as if it were under attack. And uh, that offended the Icelanders. And they're having an election coming up later this month to decide uh, what to do. Uh, The uh, population is divided over whether it's liable for the uh, debts uh, run up fraudulently uh, by the crooks 
who uh, ran the banks and who are now hiding out in England with their uh, Russian counterparts. Uh, I'd never been to Iceland before. And what I realized is that it's really like a post-Soviet economy. Uh, there's a small group of kleptocrats at the top uh, that are running the rest of the economy without uh, the rest of the economy having much say because the kleptocrats are really part of the government there. Uh, that may change uh, in the uh, upcoming election. It was a uh, uh, quite an experience. The difference is that the Icelandic kleptocrats have been there for century after century running the land and abusing the rest of the population. And uh, it shows me how much uh, similarity there is between the post-communist, uh, uh, post-Soviet economies and the uh, post-feudal economy of Iceland. Now, you just mentioned that the British had accused uh, Iceland of terrorism, and that reminds me of something that I read in one of your articles. They didn't about... really accuse them of terrorism. They put them on the terrorist list. Even the British are not so corrupt. Well, they are so corrupt, but almost not so corrupt as to really believe uh, the Icelandics are terrorists. They merely wanted an excuse to grab their money. The uh, English are in the role of pirates. Well, what I was about to say was, in one of your articles, you have uh, a section on uh, on uh, neoliberals playing the terrorist card, something like that, as part of their uh, uh, financial extraction. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. Basically, the financial sector are the barbarians at the gate. And if you're going to attack an economy and do what barbarians do, which is grab the land and uh, make the people pay rent, issue yourself monopolies, and make yourself the hereditary government, of course you want to call the defending population terrorists. And that's exactly uh, you know what's happened today. When uh, America invades the country and calls the defenders who fight back terrorists, uh, it's very much as if the British would have uh, called the American uh, revolutionaries uh, terrorists. Uh, Britain had a terrorist list which enables it to grab uh, uh, whatever money or assets it wants from other countries. So when it uh, when it acts as the homeland uh, to accept the Icelandic uh, post-feudal ruling class, and the Icelandic uh, nobles go to England and buy the soccer team, just like their uh, Russian kleptocrat counterparts, of course England is going to call them terrorists when it grabs their money. Of course, we've spoken at length before about an upcoming depression. In your view, uh, sort of simply put, which countries do you think will weather this uh, coming financial storm better, the European countries or the United States? Probably the United States, because it acts in its own self-interest, and uh, Europe acts in uh, America's self-interest. Uh, there's no feeling of uh, European self-interest there. Uh, as far as Europe concerned, uh, there's a class war of uh, finance against labor. And uh, uh, the one thing that uh, all the European politicians agree on is that they bitterly hate labor and they want to uh, reduce wages as much as they can. They're glad to see the recession because it's a golden opportunity to squeeze down uh, labor's wages. And uh, they are quite happy to see their domestic market uh, shrivel up. Uh, America, I don't see uh, doing that. Europe is self-destructive and uh, if anything, it has a death wish. Well, that's interesting that you say that, uh, that because so many people point to their uh, a, a social safety net. They say that it's much better than the United States. They're in better shape uh, uh, to weather this. Um, as well, uh, the United States is, is very anti-labor additionally. 
All that's true. It, it is true that Europe has uh, a good uh, public medicine uh, at a much lower price in the United States. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't have many jobs uh, for the labor force right now. And uh, it's uh, put much of its savings in the United States rather than developing the internal market. Uh, the European uh, government, uh, Europe is not a democracy. It's basically a kleptocracy moving back as quickly as it can towards feudalism. The European Central Bank is autonomous uh, from uh, any control by elected representatives, and uh, it essentially uh, has the policy of uh, price stability, which it construes as lowering uh, wages by as much as possible. So uh, the problem is that uh, there really aren't any jobs there, and Europe would rather give away its exports for nothing except treasury bills to the United States than actually sell them to a prosperous labor force. Uh, the class war is still so vicious there. And Europe has never really emerged from uh, feudalism. There's still an aristocracy. There's still a uh, subservience to uh, inherited wealth. Uh, whenever I go to Europe, I'm so glad I'm born an American uh, because I've never experienced here this kind of uh, sucking up quality to wealth and to, uh, uh, to uh, birth and heritage that you find over there. Yes, that's very interesting. Dr. Hudson, what do you think is the single most important thing for people to understand about the current economic meltdown? That it's going to get much worse uh, financially, and uh, that there has been no bailout of uh, uh, debtors at all, and that the debt problem is going to continue to deflate the economy, that uh, employment will go down, uh, and Basically, if you want to see our future, look at what's, uh, what happened in Russia under Yeltsin, Yeltsin's Russia, because the architects of Yeltsin's kleptocracy uh, and uh, depression are now in charge of economic policy here. Larry Summers, Geithner, uh, the whole Clinton uh, Rubenomics team uh, is now in charge of our financial policy here. And uh, they are just as right-wing as uh, the European financial managers. They, uh, they know that the game is up, and they're trying to grab as much public money as they can uh, before, before uh, people stop them from grabbing. And uh, they're not trying to uh, help the economy at all. They're trying to help themselves. And uh, if you want to see a foretaste of what policies they were able to enact when they had a free hand in Russia, just uh, look at what they did then and see whether they're going to try to do the same here. You write that the supremacy of the banks and the financial sector took thousands of years to achieve, and that allowing economies to be crippled with interest payments was unthinkable until recently. How was this financial supremacy achieved? Well, in the beginning, the first creditors in the first issue of money back in the third millennium B.C. were the temples and the palaces of Sumer and Babylonia. Uh, and down through classical antiquity, uh, most debts were owed to uh, the government as uh, taxes and user fees or tribute if they were colonies. Uh, there was very little uh, private banking as such and uh, almost no uh, credit creation. Uh, that changed basically in the medieval period when uh, kingdoms were formed and uh, they had to borrow for two reasons. One was to pay tribute uh, to Rome, uh, Peter's pence and other capital transfers to the uh, papacy, and the other was for war. And it was the need for war that enabled private bankers to emulate uh, the 
contract uh, policies that the Templars and Hospitallers and other uh, church orders had uh, developed in the 12th and 13th century to finance the Crusades. And so in the wake of the Crusades, uh, which looted uh, Byzantium and brought uh, gold and silver into Europe, very much like uh, after Columbus discovered the New World, uh, this created fortunes for Venice and for the large Italian cities. And uh, their bankers uh, developed, and then banking spread throughout Europe. And uh, the idea of public debts, uh, mainly war debts, came into being these were completely lacking in antiquity. There was no concept of uh, running into debt. Uh, all governments financed themselves on a pay-as-you-go basis. Uh, sometimes palaces would borrow from temples, uh, but the palaces and temples together were public institutions. There was no credit creation, and especially no free credit creation uh, is a private monopoly to lend uh, money to governments and extract interest that would be backed by uh, taxes. All that is uh, in the last uh, few hundred years. And even as it developed, uh, there was a response by the population at large that they had to prevent finance from just uh, crushing the economy. And the laws from the 13th century down to about 1980 all favored debtors much more than creditors. The usury laws uh, steadily lowered uh, the interest rates. Uh, bankruptcy laws made uh, debtors' prisons a uh, thing of the past and enabled individuals to wipe out their debts and start over. Uh, truth in lending laws, regulation of the banks, and uh, all of this sort of culminated in the 1930s after the financial system plunged the whole world into depression. Nobody really expected the financial sector to fight back and to... Uh, be able to somehow convince the people that it was right to take over government and centralized planning uh, was all very good as long as the government did it. So the people uh, somehow have bought the myth that a free market means a market uh, free of government regulations, free for financial predators, uh, free of the government uh, to impose truth and lending, to prevent fraud, free of police uh, over the, the uh, financial sector. And in fact, even in today's Financial Times, uh, there's a report that uh, the uh, U.S. government has a prosecutor and has found almost all of the banks that have been receiving the government bailouts have been acting in a fraudulent way. Uh, not a word in the American press about this, but basically the American uh, large financial institutions, certainly the large banks, uh, are all uh, crooks. Citibank, uh, Bank of America, countrywide, uh, all have engaged in uh, deliberate fraud, wholesale fraud, uh, and corruption. And uh, this is being noted all over Europe. It's in the European press. Not a word of it here. It's as if uh, the financial crooks are the only thing protecting us uh, from a government takeover, uh, whereas in reality, the government is the only organization and institution that can protect us from fraudulent uh, finance and protect us from the, the new barbarians at the gate. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Financial Barbarians at the Gate. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have written that we are now emerging from a financially unique period of history. Never before have people believed that the way to get rich was by running into debt. 1980 was the turning point. What happened in 1980 to change things? 
Well, interest rates were 20% back in 1980, and you had uh, Reagan come in and uh, begin to shift uh, taxes off property and uh, on to uh, labor and consumer goods. So what happened was that what used to be taxes on wealth, taxes on the upper income brackets, and taxes on real estate uh, now being freed, and whatever the tax collector uh, refrained from collecting was available for uh, bidders to bid against each other and uh, uh, pay as interest to banks in exchange for the credit to uh, buy property. So all of this credit uh, came into basically the real estate market and the stock market, and uh, interest rates uh, came down as Alan Greenspan flooded the market with credit. Uh, down payments were reduced from the usual 20% down to just about zero. Uh, instead of 30-year mortgages that would be paid off uh, over the working life of people, you had uh, zero amortization mortgages and even negative mortgages where the banks would simply add the interest rate onto the price. And finally, uh, the biggest banks, uh, Citibank, Bank of America, uh, realized that uh, they could simply uh, falsify records and cheat people and write mortgages that had no relationship either to the property's value or to the debtor's ability to pay and sell them to gullible European bankers who uh, somehow had faith in America. And so uh, you had the largest American banks uh, essentially become criminalized uh, organizations and uh, put so much money into the real estate market that everybody thought, well, gee, all we have to do is borrow money at, say, 6%, and uh, as long as uh, housing prices are going up by 10% a year, uh, we don't have to put any money down. Uh, we pay uh, the 6% to the bank, and we get uh, a 10% rate of return. We can simply refinance the mortgage every year or two and borrow the money to pay the interest. And uh, for almost no money down, we get a free ride on asset price inflation. And this was Alan Greenspan's neoliberal idea of wealth creation. Wealth creation had nothing to do with increasing the means of production, increasing industrial investment, agricultural investment, or building infrastructure. In fact, it was uh, dismantling uh, investment and downsizing firms and uh, carving them up. But what Greenspan did was simply inflate asset prices, and people thought that they could get rich somehow by financial engineering of the balance sheet rather than actual tangible investment or the kind of uh, expansion of industrial capitalism that one reads about in all the textbooks. You know, Dr. Hudson, you gave a very good illustration in one of your articles, I think your article on Iceland, to explain to people why asset inflation is not good. You wrote... And I think this is instructive for people to understand. It says, consider an attractively priced home. Would you rather own 100% of a home free of all debt with a market value of 100,000 euros, if free of debt, or would you rather own 60% of the same home at an inflated market value at 250,000 euros? In the second scenario, you would have 50,000 euros of surplus wealth, because obviously the price, the so-called value of it would be higher. You've got 60% times 250,000 equals 150,000 euros compared to 100,000 in the first example. So, I mean, even though you only own 60% of the house, it was still uh, supposedly worth more. Then you go on to say, 
people across the globe have been convinced that the second scenario represents wealth creation. What is overlooked is that the higher-priced home carries interest charges on its higher market price. This charge would amount to 6,000 euros a year, or 500 euros a month, at 6% interest. The same property is worth more, but includes a much larger debt overhead income for the financial sector, so that all that's happening really is that you owe the banks more in interest. Is that right? That's right. The same thing is here for dollars. And uh, that's the thing. The idea of buying real estate, especially if you're an investor like Donald Trump uh, or a commercial investor, the idea is that rent is for paying interest. And uh, basically, landlords will go out, they'll look at a building, they'll calculate how much rent is available after they uh, meet the uh, carrying charges, and uh, they'll pay all of this rent to the bank uh, as interest uh, in exchange for a loan to buy it. And they're willing to uh, give all this income uh, to the bank in exchange for selling it at a capital gain, because they think, well, uh, as interest rates come down more and as uh, the economy's inflated, I'm buying an inflation hedge, and I can always sell at a capital gain. And the government n- encourages this, and the government encourages it in two ways. First of all, it only tax capital gains at uh, half the rate of uh, earned income, wages and profit. And in fact, it doesn't collect capital gains tax at all if you just uh, reinvest your wealth and making more and more wealth. So essentially, uh, your your gain is tax-free if you're a real estate investor. And secondly, the government lets interest charges be tax-exempt. Now, Everybody in the 19th century, uh, all the major economists uh, since uh, the Saint-Simonians in France, thought that the idea of industrial investment should be that banks should make loans against uh, profit. Uh, That way, if the profits go up, the bank gets more. If uh, there's a recession and the profit rate goes down, uh, the bank gets less. Otherwise, uh, you're going to have a forfeiture of uh, property uh, to the bankers. Uh, instead of favoring equity investment, the uh, financial sector has uh, essentially uh, bribed uh, and financed government officials to uh, encourage uh, debt financing. And what that does is load the economy down uh, with debt charges, and whatever is paid as debt is tax-exempt so that the borrower has much more money that he can pay a banker uh, than if he pays uh, dividends on stock, uh, which are paid on an after-tax basis. So there's an asymmetry in the American economy and just about all the other Western economies uh, to favor the bankers in debt instead of favoring equity. And that's why uh, the economies throughout the world are all collapsing under the debt burden today. Yes, and I believe this uh, subject first came up in a few of our shows uh, several years ago when you were explaining why cutting property taxes doesn't really benefit homeowners or even renters because all the money that would have gone to pay taxes to the government is now extracted by the banks in interest. That's exactly right. Uh, Whatever the tax collector gives up is free to be paid for the bankers. But meanwhile, since the tax collector isn't getting the property tax anymore, it has to raise the money somewhere else. And either it taxes uh, income, mainly uh, labor income, or it taxes sales so that uh, sales taxes fall on consumers, or it borrows money from the wealthy people uh, from whom it used to tax. 
So instead of taxing uh, wealth, it now borrows from them and pays them interest. Uh, this is just the opposite of what uh, everybody expected to see under a system of progressive taxation. Right, and I th- and I think it's it's something that is is not obvious to people. They think if their property taxes are low, that they're they're getting a deal. In the short term, that's right. So they're taking a phenomenological approach. They look at the surface, and in the short term, of course, if the property tax goes up, they have to pay more. But uh, when things even out, when market forces uh, work, uh, people are not going to be able to uh, borrow as much uh, against the free rent if there's a heavy tax. And ideally, if you had a tax system that collected all of the land rent, uh, then people... uh, could borrow from the banks to uh, build buildings and pay a return, but they couldn't borrow against the land's uh, rising site value. Uh, or price, and the government would have uh, this property tax, which is now a free lunch, and it wouldn't have to uh, levy a local income tax or local sales taxes or the other kinds of uh, taxes that governments uh, levy. They'd tax wealth, which is exactly what happened throughout antiquity, when by far the major tax was uh, fell on the land, because that's where all the wealth was, and that was the only uh, way that you could uh, see how much wealth uh, somebody had. So all of this uh, Uh, that we're seeing today, this tax system, turns upside down the kind of uh, tax philosophy that civilization has had for 4,000 years. As well, you've written that central banks swamp economies with easy credit, that is, with debt, that keeps the financial sector fat while impoverishing the increasingly indebted nation. Uh, Is this what is happening today with the bailouts? This sounds like what you've been describing. Well, uh, yes, but not in the usual way. Uh, The bailout does create debt. The government is doing a cash-for-trash swap where the government uh, takes junk mortgages, uh, many of them fraudulent, uh, many of them about to be prosecuted for criminal uh, felony, I believe, and uh, has given them good uh, government bonds, newly printed, that are going to have to uh, pay interest by levying taxes uh, on the population as a whole. So uh, the banks themselves were supposed to turn around and levy debt. Essentially, what Geithner uh, has said was the solution to an over-indebted economy is lend even more money, uh, inflate prices even more. We've got to make housing prices higher and uh, lend enough money so they can pay the banks so that the banks that have been doing all of this crooked activity uh, can continue to collect on the credit that they've created and extract even more from the economy. So Geithner is supporting the financial sector against uh, the rest of the economy. And uh, Obama apparently believes that the best solution for America is to lower wages, uh, take-home wages, and disposable income by about 20% and uh, give money away to his largest campaign contributors, the financial sector. You were a balance of payments economist on Wall Street for 40 years. Exactly what was it that you did? Well, uh, for Chase Manhattan, my job was to look at uh, third world uh, uh, countries and estimate how much can they afford to borrow. And the way in which I do that would uh, I'd say how much can they afford to export, how much of their infrastructure can they sell off, and if they can export, say, $10 billion a year, then that will carry a loan at 5% of uh, 20 times that. So uh, 
that would be like uh, uh, 200 uh, billion or so. And then I'd uh, calculate what proportion of the overall foreign debt uh, does Chase Manhattan have, and I'd say this is sort of uh, what I believe our quota could be. Underlying that calculation was the assumption that whatever a third world country could generate uh, over and above subsistence, all the uh, income that normally would go to labor would go to paying the banks. All the export proceeds would go to pay the banks. All the profits would go to pay the banks. Everything the government could tax would go to pay the foreign banks. So the idea was how much of a surplus could be squeezed out of these economies, uh, keeping them poor, keeping them in poverty, but enriching uh, Wall Street. And uh, that was how I learned about how to do the balance of payments and how banking worked. Uh, I then went to work uh, for Arthur Anderson doing uh, the U.S. balance of payments. These were during the Vietnam War years in the 19, uh, late 60s when I found found out that the entire U.S. balance of payments deficit was military in character. Uh, the private sector was exactly in balance. Uh, the military was uh, running the deficit. Uh, and then later on, I continued to do balance of payments uh, consulting, uh, I guess, down through the 1990s for Chase and uh, for various Wall Street uh, clients in the intervening decades. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show... The Financial Barbarians at the Gate. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Why do you now say that your seminal book published in 1972, Super Imperialism, should have been titled Monetary Imperialism? Because uh, super imperialism sounds sort of pop. And the form of imperialism uh, that America did is different from the kind of imperialism that people think of in terms of European colonialism. Uh, unlike uh, England, the United States didn't have to invade countries, at least before the oil grab in Iraq and the Near East. Uh, it, it got a free ride and uh, drained other countries by uh, the international monetary system's workings. As long as foreign countries kept their reserves uh, of the central banks in the form of treasury bonds. This meant that however much uh, foreign countries would export and earn on balance, they would lend to the U.S. Treasury, which would finance the U.S. Uh, balance of payments deficit. And this would also finance uh, uh, the budget deficit, because the foreign central banks became the largest buyers of U.S. Treasury bills, so that Americans didn't have to finance their federal government's budget deficit. Now, half of the federal government's discretionary spending, uh, as Ralph Nader pointed out a few weeks ago, is military in character. So foreign central banks, by keeping their reserves in dollars, essentially finance the U.S. Uh, government's military uh, spending throughout the world, surrounding them to uh, prevent them really from uh, trying to break away from this exploitative free lunch that we're getting by the fact that we print paper dollars and we get their exports. American investors get to buy their industry and uh, all they get are paper dollars in amounts that can never, ever be repaid. So that while the United States insists that uh, third world countries and other countries repay its debt to it, it has no intention ever of repaying its debt to them. It's a free ride and it's a purely exploitative relationship. Well, speaking of the dollar, there's been talk lately, particularly from China, but a few other countries, 
of uh, replacing the dollar as the global uh, reserve currency and coming up with some sort of uh, a fictitious uh, currency that would sit on top of all of the national currencies and uh, be used, I guess, for international trade, etc. What do you think of this idea? When you, there's a myth that the balance of payments deficit is trade. It's not trade, it's military. When they say uh, finance America's trade deficit, what they mean is our military spending abroad. Uh, don't use the euphemism of uh, trade deficit for our military spending and our empire building uh, and our aggressive wars in the Near East. Uh, so it's military. Uh, what China uh, did uh, basically was saying, we want to avoid getting any more dollars. We know that America is not going to pay the $2 trillion that we have. We know that America is running a trade deficit, and it's running a military deficit as well. So that uh, about a month ago, when Coca-Cola tried to buy uh, China's largest fruit juice uh, distributor for, um, uh, I think, a few billion dollars. China said, no, we're not going to give away our companies for your damn paper. If uh, we, we let uh, Coca-Cola buy our fruit juice distributor for $2 billion, the local uh, Chinese seller is going to turn this dollar inflow over to the central bank in order to get our domestic currency, the yuan. The central bank is then going to have to uh, uh, decide what to do with this $2 billion, and uh, it will uh, buy treasury bills to finance the government to surround us with uh, atom bombs and uh, armies to try to invade us if we ever say, no, we don't want any more of your damn dollars. So, of course, they said no. Uh, they wanted to stop America's military aggression. Uh, and China's aim is primarily just to be left in peace uh, without being attacked militarily. The U.S. government is threatening the whole world militarily by saying, if you do not accept our dollars, we will uh, treat that as an act of war. And uh, in 1974, Herman Kahn and I went down to the White House and met with the Treasury when uh, the Treasury Secretary explained to us uh, that uh, they told OPEC that uh, OPEC could charge whatever it wanted for its oil, but it had to invest all of its profits uh, on the oil back in the United States. If it didn't, that would be an act of war, and we would kill them, and there would be a revolution. That is the new imperialism, that America will uh, make a revolution, uh, murder elected leaders, as it did in Chile, if they choose not to uh, export to the United States for dollars, or if they refuse to accept uh, dollars in exchange for their industry. This is uh, uh, utterly imperialistic system. It works through the monetary system, and it is a quid without quo. It's uh, purely a, a free lunch, and uh, the uh, U.S. government has fought any monetary reform because it wants to continue to get a free lunch, mainly because uh, without the free lunch, it could not uh, afford the military bases that it's putting all over the world to threaten other countries to remain in the American monetary system. Right, but what but what about these comments about getting rid of the dollar as the reserve currency? I read somewhere in the paper that even Geithner, the head of the Treasury, sort of slipped up and said, "Well, maybe they'd they'd go for a new kind of uh, international reserve currency." And then he retracted his statement. So, are you saying that there's no way that the United States would ever agree to such a thing? There's one way the United States would agree to it, and that is if uh, foreign central banks would take their treasury bills uh, and essentially uh, turn them into the IMF in exchange for what's called paper gold, which would be IMF play money. The IMF would then uh, tear up 
uh, all of the Treasury bills. So the, uh, the U.S. would no longer owe four trillion dollars to foreign central banks. It would owe nothing to foreign banks, and uh, instead, foreign banks would get play money uh, to exchange uh, this paper gold. The United States would love that. That's the uh, only kind of uh, alternative IMF currency uh, it would accept. Obviously, foreign countries, uh, the uh, uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization will not go along with this because their whole idea is to reform the monetary system to prevent uh, America's military attack on them. Okay, so you're saying that either way it wouldn't make any difference. We're still talking about uh, uh, U.S. imperialism through the monetary system. That's, that's correct. Do you think that the game is over in terms of neoliberal economic policies imposed on the rest of the world? Uh, you, you don't know. The government is trying to prevent any alternative from being voiced, and it has the support of uh, the economics profession, which is almost entirely in the hands of uh, neoliberals in the Chicago School and uh, the Harvard Economics Department, uh, the, uh, the far right of the political spectrum. And uh, as long as people are not informed that there is an alternative, namely classical economics, and as long as they're not taught economic history, as long as they can uh, censor economic thought from the uh, academic curriculum, people are not going to have any idea of what Adam Smith or Ricardo or John Stuart Mill or Henry George or Marx really uh, really wrote at all, and they'll believe that there's only one kind of economics, and that's the neoliberal, really neo-feudal economics that's uh, uh, taught by the uh, uh, Chicago School. As long as the financial sector can block a knowledge of the alternative, people will feel that there's no alternative. Is the expansion of fictitious capital, that is the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, an inherent characteristic of capitalist development? I hear a lot about the falling rate of profit being at the root of the financialization of the economy today. Do you think this is true? And in your opinion, was it inevitable? Uh, It certainly was not inevitable. Uh, Matters didn't have to be this way, and they don't have to be this way. Uh, The financial and real estate sector basically are a legacy of the military conquests that shaped feudal Europe. Uh, The land rent uh, is largely the legacy to a a landed aristocracy that were the heirs of the military warlords and uh, vandals uh, who took over most of the European countries. And as I mentioned, uh, the private banking was a legacy of the Crusades and of the the war lending that uh, shaped European kingdoms in the Middle Ages. Uh, I don't like to use the word falling rate of profit because the term itself is a Marxist term. And when Marx used it, uh, he expected the Industrial Revolution to have more and more capital investment per unit. Uh, He thought that labor productivity would would rise steadily by technology uh, embodied in more and more capital per worker. Now, in fact, uh, that trend hasn't uh, borne out over time. There's not more and more capital per industrial worker. Uh, Many of the innovations are capital-saving as well as uh, labor-saving. What there usually is is more and more energy per worker, but that doesn't entail a larger capital expense. Well, what Marx said was that uh, the earlier economics from Canet and the physiocrats down through Adam Smith, 
that uh, economists had left out an element of, of value that was very important, and that was the depreciation on the machinery. And Marx said, if a capitalist, an industrialist, invests in machinery and plant and equipment, uh, they have to recover the cost that they've uh, spent on this uh, plant and equipment. Just as a bondholder would not only get interest, they'd get the principal. The capitalist not only makes a profit on his investment, but uh, as the machinery wears out, he gets to recapture the capital that he actually put into the machinery so that he can buy new machinery and upgrade. And Marx added that even if the machinery doesn't wear out, it becomes technologically obsolete as uh, efficiency and productivity of new inventions rise. So Marx said, as there's more and more uh, capital relative to uh, the cash flow that uh, uh, corporations earn, there's going to be uh, less and less uh, profit uh, relative to this cash flow. So all Marx meant when he talked about the falling rate of profit was a rising rate of depreciation. Now, I've heard many Marxists uh, uh, give talks over the last four decades, and uh, I've uh, never met one who understood uh, really what uh, depreciation was. And they think that uh, profits fall because wages go up, and uh, very few uh, socialists and Marxists actually read uh, capital. Some do, but uh, when I grew up, uh, just about everybody I knew was a Marxist uh, because of my family, and not a single socialist leader or labor leader that I knew had ever actually read capital. But they all knew about the uh, phrase falling rate of profit. So I don't want to use it. Uh, today, profits are falling for quite a different reason uh, that neither Marx nor anybody else in the 19th century could have guessed. And profits are falling because uh, corporate raiders and uh, ambitious conglomerate builders are borrowing the money to buy other firms, and so profit uh, are being used to pay interest to bondholders. So uh, cash flow is being crowded out, not by uh, payment for machinery and depreciating machinery, but by uh, paying more and more uh, debt service uh, to the uh, creditors. And that's something that uh, nobody in the 19th century really believed uh, would happen. They anticipated that finance was going to be a handmaiden for industrial capitalism, that it would finance capital investment not dismantle it, downsize it, and outsource the labor force. Uh, nobody anticipated that the financial sector would turn as perverse as it's done, really, in the last uh, three decades. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The Financial Barbarians at the Gate. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I'm glad that you've discussed this concept of falling rate of profit, because I always hear this bandied about, and it's never really been clear what exactly the theory is. So so thank you for that. Well, Marx went over this particularly in his theories of surplus value, which originally he'd planned to, uh, to make the first uh, volume of Capital. Uh, and that itself is in three books. It's as long as Capital. And in fact, Engels and then Kautsky made uh, much of the second and third volumes of Capital off the manuscript of Marx's uh, theories of surplus value. And the first translation into English was by my own mentor, Terence McCarthy. And in his introduction to that in 1952, uh, which he translated under the uh, title A History of Economic Doctrines, uh, he explains uh, the role of depreciation and called Marx's 
really the first modern cost accountant uh, because value theory is basically a theory of uh, the necessary costs that go into producing uh, goods and services. And uh, Marx's theory of uh, surplus value was the first history of economic thought that really reviewed in a critical fashion what kind of costs were socially necessary and what kind of costs uh, were not necessary, namely rent and interest uh, that were the the topics of uh, the second and third uh, books of the series of surplus value and also the second and third volumes of capital, uh, respectively. Uh, very few uh, Marxists really get into the second or the third volume of capital, but especially the third volume of capital is where Marx gets into uh, the fact that finance grows not uh, as a reflection of the rate of profit, but purely autonomous uh, mathematical laws independently of the capital process. And the danger, Marx thought, was that uh, finance would break free of industrial capital and rather than being industrialized, as he hoped to see, uh, would take on a life of its own and uh, end up stifling industrial investment. And in fact, that's exactly what's happened. Well, that's very interesting. I have here... uh a quote from one of the articles you've written lately. It says, Marx was an optimist when it came to his expectations for how banking would evolve. He thought that uh, that industrial capitalism would be run by the industrialists uh, with a view towards uh, accumulating more and more uh, physical capital to expand markets. And uh, uh, contra Ricardo, Marx said that there could not be a permanent crisis under industrial capitalism uh, because capitalists would continue to uh, make innovations and invest in cost-cutting uh, innovations to undersell uh, their competitors. Well, of course, this is obviously where Schumpeter got uh, much of his uh, ideas about innovation. And uh, Marx believed that uh, with industrialists influencing governments and with governments believing that uh, their best hope for national advance, including military advance, was going to be by building up industry, that uh, industry and the government together would subordinate finance to serve the needs of industry. And in fact, industry is now being carved up uh, to make short-term gains for the financial sector uh, in a way that nobody really expected. Uh, Engels, in a footnote to the third volume of Capital, said Marx was always a follower of the French uh, uh, Saint-Simon, who uh, wanted to shift banking away from uh, the creation of debt uh, and credit into uh, something much more like a mutual fund uh, like you had uh, with French banking in the uh, from the 1860s and 70s and uh, later uh, German industrial banking and Central Europe banking where you had uh, banking allied with industry uh, much more. Uh, after World War One, and especially after World War II, uh, because England and America basically won the war, uh, they dismantled uh, the German industrial banking system and replaced it uh, with a kind of rip-off uh, banking, uh, especially real estate banking, that you have uh, uh, today with the Anglo-American uh, banking system, not the German and later the Japanese industrial banking system. That's something that nobody in the 19th century could have anticipated, uh, the dominance of finance over industry rather than of uh, industrial capitalism over finance. Yes, and then you went on to say 
with regard to Marx, he expected finance to become part of the industrial economy and thereby rescued from its historically predatory behavior. With regard to Marx's longer, long-term perspective, industrial capitalism is not evolving into socialism, but into a parasitic and extractive finance capitalism. One, therefore, can say that the greatest tragedy to befall industrial capitalism is its failure to evolve into socialism. Instead, it is retrogressing into the neo-feudalism of debt peonage to a financial oligarchy. Uh, Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, (laughs) uh, At the New School, I used uh, Theories of Surplus Value as my textbook, for a national income accounting. Uh, Hal Bronner refused to let me uh, uh, teach the course again and brought in a bunch of Stalinist thugs, uh, who, uh, one of whom committed suicide under LSD, and uh, essentially forbid me to teach uh, what Marx wrote in order that he could teach his uh, own Stalinist uh, version of Marxism. When was this? From 1969 to 1972. Basically, in, in 1971 and two, uh, I was uh, teaching a national income course at the graduate faculty of the New School and using uh, Terence McCarthy's translation of the theories of surplus values, uh, my textbook. Uh, this brought uh, huge protests from the Stalinist uh, faculty. You've also written that for the oligarchy, the crisis is over. They won. They have all the money. Five trillion is enough to create a new ruling class in America for the next century. What is the crisis? You say it's not a financial crisis, but a political crisis. Could you explain that? Well, the crisis basically was financial at root. It's the inability to pay. The debts far exceeded the ability to pay. Now, uh, for the last few hundred years, actually for the last 4,000 years, when people couldn't pay, the debts uh, either were wiped out or uh, property owners forfeited their property to foreclosing creditors. But one way or another, the debts went way down. Uh, this, this crisis is different. And the Bush and the Obama administration are handling uh, things in an identical uh, fashion. There seems to be no difference at all uh, between the Republicans and the Democrats here. Now, uh, politically, the government says, okay, we know that uh, the debts are in advance of the ability to pay. Let's uh, have the government uh, issue as many treasury bonds as it can, uh, give all of us gamblers for derivative trade, uh, give us the people who've uh, played the uh, derivative market, played the futures market, betting against current and uh, exchange rates and stock market prices. Uh, Let's uh, give all the money to all of the winners and uh, then let the economy essentially collapse. We'll take the money and some of it we'll uh, use to buy property. Some of it we'll move abroad if we can find the market. We'll we'll try to move some into China. We'll move some into the third world. Uh, We'll buy natural resources. Uh, We'll take the money and run. And essentially for the last year, the Treasury policy has been for the financial sector and uh, uh, the hedge funds and the uh, the gamblers who are rich enough to uh, invest in hedge funds uh, to try to get as much money as they can, uh, grab it now, and uh, let the economy shrink. You have also said that this crisis has happened before, for example, in the Roman Republic. 
Yes, in uh, in Rome, what happened was that twenty five percent of the population was reduced to uh, bondage uh, or slavery, and uh, impoverished by the creditors. And if you'd uh, lost your land to a foreclosing creditor, uh, you had to find someone to be a uh, uh, a patron for you, and you'd be a client of a patron, and you'd say, "Okay, uh, here I am. Uh, I can fight. You know, I'll be loyal to you. Uh, give me a plot on your land, and uh, all I want is." the ability to grow enough food to uh, uh, feed my family uh, and grow enough uh, wool to weave clothes and, uh, uh, you know, to provide for us. And so uh, you had uh, the large uh, creditors uh, who made their financial fortunes would all plow their money back into the land. They'd buy land because owning land was the ability to offer uh, clients a means of subsistence. And uh, at the end of this road was the Dark Age. Uh, the Roman uh, wealthy class uh, didn't put its money into uh, uh, making um, more industry or handicraft or expansion. Uh, it left uh, foreign trade largely in the hands of uh, Near Easterners uh, and merchants. And uh, so you had life uh, de-urbanized and retreat to self-sufficient estates on the land, which is where most of the handicraft uh, workshops were resettled. Uh, the weaving was done on the land, the clothes-making uh, was done on the land, the food was produced there, and uh, essentially you had a lapse uh, back into a subsistence economy as the financial sector just stripped uh, whatever ability there was uh, to produce, and especially Rome stripped its colonies in Asia Minor, uh, what's now Turkey, and anywhere else that it could just uh, extract that tribute from. And uh, the whole Roman Empire in the West was stripped. Uh, it survived in the East, in Byzantium. And so while Western Europe fell into feudalism, uh, the Byzantine Empire was the uh, one part uh, that survived until uh, the Crusades uh, mounted a military attack and uh, looted uh, Byzantium and Constantinople and uh, seized its gold and silver and used this to uh, uh, create banking fortunes that were lent out to kingdoms to uh, wage war against each other. And then you had the uh, uh, public debt uh, development that we discussed earlier in the interview. Well, if we're heading, if, if it looks like we're heading back into debt peonage, what measures should labor take? I mean, what, what do you think ideally people should do at this point? Well, obviously, the idea of investing pensions in the stock market isn't going to work if uh, the money that you're saving and putting into the stock market goes down and down in price. Uh, uh, suppose you've been working for 20 years, putting your money in. Uh, last year's uh, stock market decline has wiped out 10 years of your saving. So that's not what to do. Uh, you want a uh, the same thing with Social Security. Uh, the government uh, pretended that uh, it was imposing the FICA uh, wage withholding in order to uh, save up money uh, for Social Security, but what it really did was provide the Treasury with money that it could afford uh, tax cuts on the on the rich. So labor should say, look, we want uh, to take the German uh, rule. We want uh, a pay-as-you-go Social Security, pay it out of taxes, not out of our wages, but out of uh, a return to progressive taxation, even what you had in the Clinton era, but ideally what you had in the Reagan era, when at least you had the uh, remnants of a progressive tax system uh, before the uh, Democrats under Clinton slashed uh, uh, taxes. 
and uh, uh, you want to essentially finance uh, Social Security and medical care out of progressive taxation that falls mainly on the rich. So they want to return to that. They want to raise the capital gains tax so it's taxed at least as high as normal income, preferably at a higher rate of normal income, because you want uh, companies to earn a profit by actually producing goods and services. You don't want them to make capital gains by buying and selling other companies and uh, financial uh, manipulation, which is what creates uh, the uh, finance capital gains. Uh, so those are uh, the two big things. And you also, if you're labor, you want to uh, stop the tax deductibility of interest payments. You want to shift the economy away from a debt-oriented economy towards an equity-oriented economy, just as was suggested by the Sansimonians and endorsed by almost all the 19th century classical economists. Uh, so you're going to re- want to restore those three basic planks of uh, classical economics. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been The Financial Barbarians at the Gate. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, The New International Economic Order. Dr. Hudson has been a consultant to foreign governments, including Canada, Mexico, and Russia. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628, or email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Release. You dig me?